Holy chimbao, people. We have a sponsor. WorldDrumLessons.com. Scott Kettner, episode 15, has a really, really slick website that he has started where um, he is offering video courses teaching about the drums of Brazil and the rhythms of Brazil and the techniques for playing those rhythms on those drums from Brazil. And in true Scott Kettner style, he shows how to blend those with New Orleans rhythms and other uh, locations around the world. So he has all these video courses broken up into um, different types of lessons. So there's technique lessons, which is amazing, like technique on how to play the pandero, for example. And then also there's like the repertoire side. So not only do you learn how to play and how to use your instrument, but also like how to play grooves and different styles and arrangements on that instrument, which is like, you know, the perfect thing. That's what we all want is like learn how to play, but not just be able to play exercises, be able to like play something. He has videos in there for beginners all the way up to advanced. So a full range of uh, videos for anybody, even Brian Rice. There's something in there for you, Brian Rice. Um, he's he's like constantly uploading videos. I was in there earlier today, and he's um, put in looks like a video just like last week. So he's constantly like putting in new stuff and new content. But there's already a ton of content in there. Um, there's also like a bit of a forum, so like a community there where you can ask questions. He's in there a lot, answering questions, and other people from um, community are in there also answering questions. And guess what? For you guys, for our listeners, you can get one month free of either his uh, series of Marikatsu lessons or the Pandero lessons, or both, I guess. So you go to the site, you click on either the Marikatsu one or the Pandero one, and when you hit subscribe, you put in our link, Brazilian Beat, and uh, yeah, you should get one month for free. So yeah, go ahead and check it out. Today I was in there and I went to the Pandero one because I'm kind of trying to learn how to play that. Not super serious, but I'm, I'm playing around with it a little bit. And um, I watched the video on grid technique. That was interesting. Um, it's kind of something that he learned from Marcus Suzano and um, has kind of developed it into his own um, teaching method. Um, there's also other videos in there that are really good for beginners, like how to even hold the drum, how to tune it. Um, how to make it sound the way you want to by like learning how to dampen the jingles or make the drum lighter, which is nice for me and my wimpy little girl arms. <laughs> it's just like really handy information that isn't necessarily out there in other videos. I, I super appreciate that. There's also um, in each lesson, there's he has a link of YouTube videos or sorry, a list of YouTube videos where he like, you know, these are for inspiration. So watch this amazing person uh, play this instrument and blow your mind. So <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a really awesome thing that he built. And it's, um, yeah, really happy for what he's done and proud of him. So anyway, um, yes, yeah, so go to worlddrumlessons.com. And then when you hit subscribe on either the Marca 2 course or the Pandero course, um, put in the uh, coupon code Brazilian Beat, and there's also links on our website. You'll go in there and see um, in the Brian Cooper Writer episode. You'll see these big, I don't know, stickers. I guess you call them, or big uh, images in there that you can click on. So, yeah, go check it out. All right, on to the show. This is the Brazilian Beat. 
join us as we get to know the Brazilian percussion music making community one interview at a time. This is Diana. And this is Courtney. Hello, everybody. Welcome for episode number 34. With Brian Cooperwriter. We're really happy that Brian could come on, even though we had a few technical difficulties. Um, we pushed through, and here's the episode. So a little bit about, about Brian. Brian Cooperwriter is an educator, designer, and a musician. He started playing piano at the age of eight, and his musical journey has never stopped. His love of music extends from American folk and jazz to Brazilian samba and Afro-Cuban roots music. He's a multi-instrumentalist, playing saxophone, guitar, and percussion. In 2008, he founded Samba Tuki, a Brazilian percussion bateria dedicated to the rhythms and grooves of the Brazilian nation. And he regularly appears around Flagstaff with his jazz ensemble, The Flat Fives, which is an awesome name for a jazz ensemble. (laughs) (laughs) He has composed many original arrangements for Brazilian percussion ensemble, which are frequently performed by his group, Samba Tuki. Brian has studied and collaborated with numerous master musicians, among them master Ghanaian drummer Amara Mansari, Georgie Martins from Recife, Brazil, Marcus Santos from Bahia, episode 15, I think, uh, Dudu Fuentes from Batuca La Catuca, episode <laughs> 10, uh, Georgie Alabe, <laughs> episode 6, I think, and as well as an American percussionist, Brian Rice, uh, episodes who have yet come out, Amy... <laughs> Molinelli, Michael Spiro, also another episode, and uh, body rhythm master Keith Terry, among others. As a teacher by training, Brian leads workshops with students ranging from kindergartners to adults. So enjoy this episode with Brian. He has a lot to share. He's been doing this a long time. He's been doing this about 10 years. And um, so he's got a lot of tips for um, some of you guys out there uh, running groups. Thanks for listening. Diana, how's it going? I'm doing dandy. How are you, Courtney? Super dandy? <laughs> are you doing super, super dandy? I'm doing quite dandy. Awesome. Dandy-licious. <laughs> <laughs> so, we've had quite a night already. Uh, so, no further delay uh, in introducing <laughs> our guest tonight. Our guest is Mr. Brian Cooperwriter from Flagstaff, Arizona, director of Samba Tuki. Welcome, Brian. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> <laughs> it's I going ab- really great. I thought about acting like my voice broke up and saying, I, was, uh. <laughs> I knew it upset the two of you. <laughs> We've been dealing with some technical difficulties, so this is our third or fourth time <laughs> starting. So hopefully this one keeps going. <laughs> it sounds like it's going well, so. Thank you for... Uh, Putting up with our delays. Yeah, oh, no problem. All right, let's get going. So, tell us a little about yourself. Tell us, um, like where you grew up and your first experiences playing music. Yeah, I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona. Lovely Phoenix, Arizona. Actually, Phoenix was lovely at one point. It's a little <laughs> overrun now, but um, I'm a desert boy. Love the desert. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So, uh, had a normal kid childhood, riding my bike around and. You know, ding dong ditching at uh, neighbor's house, and uh, you know, uh, ding dong ditching. Oh, do you guys never do that as kids? <laughs> what is I, that? I know what that is. It's when you what walk up and ring the doorbell and then run. So oh, then, yeah. oh, yeah. Yeah, gotcha. I, I know it's kind of dumb, but <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know it had a name. <laughs> it does. Um, I started playing music in second grade. 
taken piano lessons with I think um, everybody who takes piano lessons starts early with a with an elderly woman who um, yep. yes yeah, so you're laughing you had piano lessons didn't you Diana <laughs> <laughs> I didn't but it sounds familiar my 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 kids took uh, piano lessons from uh, kind of the classic Mormon mom who stays home and you know wonderful people who are great teachers and it's either that or you get the kind of the the old gray-haired lady but uh, yeah that's that's where I started and tried out the violin in fourth grade and uh, really didn't love the violin I was never a huge fan of classical music I think that's why but Played the, started on the saxophone in fifth grade and stayed there for years and years and years. I, I still play saxophone. Um, you know, I have a little jazz uh, trio that I play play out with and um, learned guitar because when I was in college, my uh, my roommates. Uh, this is the bane of most woodwind players. We we laugh about this at camp. Uh, um, you know, the other saxophone players because everybody hates having a saxophone player as a roommate. We're just loud. <laughs> <laughs> so I I switched to guitar because you can. You know, one of those guys who's in the corner looking at those finger charts, trying to contort your fingers into those like positions to play some Eagles song mm-hmm. or something to mm-hmm. to sing to the girl on the beach. And so, you know, I did that for a while. And um, yeah, that that that's the timeline of my musical uh, uh, career until I till I started drumming, and then oh, there I found home. <laughs> <laughs> actually, actually, no, it's kind of a funny story. My uh, um. Uh, when I was in college, I was taking saxophone lessons from this cool cat, you know, this old jazz dude who told me, he's, uh, one day he said to me, he said, you have no rhythm at all. He said, you really need to get out and dance with the girls. And I was like, what? <laughs> and this guy taught in, in a certain way. And he, you know, every time we'd go through songs, like, man, you got to hit the seventh on the change and, you know, hit the third half step above that when the chord changes. And every time I was playing music, I, I was just thinking so hard. I'm like, oh, here comes that change. And I was always late mm-hmm. because my mm-hmm. brain was going. And I think that's why he said that to me. Um, and I just didn't learn the way he taught. I tell the story to all my friends that are music teachers because what I took away from that as a music teacher now is that is that everybody learns in different ways. And your job as a teacher is to figure out how that, that student of yours learns. Because some people learn the intellectual way. Some people mm-hmm. learn by feeling. Some people, everybody learns different ways, and you got to watch them and figure out, you know, what's going to kind of really jive with them. But when I moved to Flagstaff, I was looking for a group of people to play with. I'd moved from from the Bay Area, and um, so my music scene had completely changed. And I was looking for people to play with, and I saw a listing in the community college for uh, for West African drumming. And I thought, well, this is my chance to figure out if what my saxophone teacher told me is true. <laughs> but I loved that from the moment I went in. I started performing almost immediately with the uh, with the West African Ensemble and did that for lots and lots of years. Um, so that was kind of where I started drumming. And that's that's a kind of a rough place to start, uh, you know, rhythm is in West African yeah. <laughs> music. Mm-hmm. Definitely. How old were you at the time? Uh, I was probably 30 um, 32 at the time. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I'm actually 75 now, so I've been drumming for, <laughs> for I don't look that old, do I? You don't. You age well. <laughs> no, I'm not that old. I'm 49 if I, if I'm going to be honest. So <laughs> I shall be 50 next week. What am I thinking? Oh, Always wow. Smokes. Happy yeah. birthday. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. So when did you first encounter um, Brazilian drumming? 
So um, the guy I, I drummed with here, Dan McMillan, who's a good friend of mine, a really great drummer. He lives in, in Pittsburgh now, actually. And um, anyways, not to talk about Dan too long. Uh, he, we all kind of, uh, you know, we, we played West African for a long time. And at some point, somebody kind of brought some Brazilian music. And none of us really knew much, but we'd heard some. And so we tried playing a little batucada. We actually had a small ensemble that played um, songs of a batequetu. So we figured those mm-hmm. out and performed uh, those. I told Mark Lampson this story, and Mark said, immediately said, well, which song? And I was like, oh, God, I don't remember, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> but we were all trying to figure that out. Um, and I just, from the, from the get-go, I just loved that music. And I also uh, had been attending this, this music camp, California Coast Music Camp, which is a completely different style of music. And uh, one year, they had this teacher there whose name was Brian Rice. He was teaching a samba class, and I went to his class, which this this camp teaches mostly folk, bluegrass, um, swing, things like that. And he looks at me, and he says, you've played some of this before. And I said, oh, yes, I love this music. And he said, you must uh, come to Brazil camp. And I said, when is it? And he said, in two weeks. (laughs) (laughs) And so I drove home and called Rich on the phone because I I think at the time, somehow I got his phone number and I said, can I come to camp? I've missed the deadline for everything. And he said, we we have, this is back when Brazil camp had only one week. And he said, we have a a spot for you. And I'll never forget my first year at camp. Uh, I went to camp. I knew nobody. And all of this Brazilian music was happening everywhere. I went to, uh, at the time, the Candomblé class was taught by Gamo. And I went, mm-hmm. to, went to Gamo's class. And by day, the morning of day three, my brain was just full. And I was, <laughs> I was ready to explode. <laughs> and I, 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 couldn't ta- I couldn't learn anymore. I was writing things down as fast as I could. And I just, you, you know how your brain just somehow just shuts down at some point. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we all, we all, we all know, know that. that. Yeah. <laughs> And I spent the next two days just wandering around. And I, and I said at that point, I said, I, I really love all of this music. I need to start my own group. And it took me two or three years to figure out how to do that. And uh, then I, I did. I started uh, Sambatuki a few years later with a little bit that I knew um, and, you know, kind of took off, took off from there. <laughs> so it, it was a little bit blurry in those years. I had little kids at the time, too. So um, it's it's... It's a lot of work to, I was a stay-at-home dad, so to be a kind of primary caregiver and have all of that white noise of children in the back of your head and trying to focus on, on playing music as well. The guys in the West African group used to make fun of me because I'd show up and I'd say, what are we playing you know, tonight for class? And they're like, well, we're, we're playing Soli or whatever the rhythm was. And, and I'm like, what's that? And they'd all look at me and laugh and they'd say, we've been playing it for a month. And like, Can somebody just play a little bit? And I'm like, oh yeah, that's it. <laughs> And I kept saying, someday you'll all have kids and go, this guy was crazy. I can't believe he was doing this. <laughs> None of them had kids. End of that story. Ah. <laughs> uh, well, you guys sounds like you got bit by the bug. Oh, man. I Hardcore, love Brazilian yeah. music. Yeah. there's it's. Yeah. I, I tell people always, and I'm preaching to the choir here, to me it's the apex of, of world, just music in general, where the African kind of uh, rhythmic sensibilities collide with Western uh, melodic um, and just everything about Brazilian music to me is just so sophisticated in a, in a very kind of, and I don't mean that in a kind of technical academic way. It's sophisticated in a human musical evolution way. Hmm. Hmm. And it's hard to describe that to people who just, you know, they love their kind of 
rock and roll or which I, I love that too, but they just don't get beyond that. And they, they don't, it, it's really hard to listen to, to music now that just has the same beat over and over again. That doesn't <laughs> anyways. So I love, yeah, Brazilian music is really great. And once, once that happened, we just, I've never kind of looked back to me. It's always, you know, been pushing forward with learning more and more. And you guys know too, once you learn a little Brazilian music, you realize, oh, there's Northeastern Brazil. Oh, and there's Fajo. Oh, and there's, and it just keeps mm -hmm. going. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. After you've kind of gotten, after you get involved in some of these things, I mean, West African also, but Brazilian rhythms and music and things, it's pop music sounds very empty. I heard an interview with, um, Frank Zappa's son, what's his name? Dweezil Zappa. And he Dweezil? was saying when he was a kid, he hadn't really heard music on the radio, like pop music on the radio. And the first time he heard it, his response was, where's the rest of it? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Isn't that, I mean, it's a good description of, yeah. of what, you know, pop music on the radio sounds like. There's just not a lot there. I once wanted to start a, uh, a music listening club, much like people have book groups, like a music mm. group. And, uh, oh, that's a great idea. Yeah, and people have said to me, well, I, I'm not a musician. I can't do that. And I look at them and say, well, you're in two book groups. Are you a writer? You know, you can still, <laughs> you can still listen to right. it yeah. and enjoy it. Do you it. have ears? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, I mean, I, I, there's, there's three things I like in music. I, um, I really love kind of rhythm um, and melody and then what I call texture, which is when you listen to a song over and over and you go, oh, well, I didn't, I didn't hear that instrument over here or I didn't mm -hmm. hear, you know, that drone that was happening. So when there's all these layers of things that fit in that make the music kind of more three-dimensional, mm -hmm. uh, and those are the things, and you don't have to have all of them. I mean, I like pop music because it just has a nice melody. And I love African music, which it, I've gotten in arguments with Africans about this. It's not melodic. It's very rhythmic. And they say, well, there's melody in the rhythm. Well, of course there is. But that's just a silly argument to kind of go down the rabbit hole with. Um, but I love that, too. That's just just strong rhythm. But those are the kind of the things that I listen for. And a lot of music that I think can be popular is just devoid of all three of those. Um, and I don't know. That, that, I guess that's kind of my... Uh, my musical kind of template when I listen for things. See, now I sound like a music critic. <laughs> <laughs> I like that idea of a yeah. of a music listening club because then other people could bring their their uh, music that maybe you haven't ever heard of, and everyone just talk about it. God, I like that idea. Yeah, isn't that isn't that cool? And and, mm -hmm. and you can talk about whether you like it or don't. You don't have to like it. I mean, yeah, books, right. Book clubs, people dislike the books all the time. <laughs> Okay, everybody sign up for Brian's um, listening club here. Yeah, come on out. We'll, we'll, we'll do it all over uh, um, one of these technology things online that we'll spend an hour. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So can you tell us a little bit about your group? Yeah. Um, Samba Tuki, I started it almost 10 years ago. And hmm. it's uh, it's a community group. Um which means, well, everybody listening to you, I'm sure knows what that means. But uh, our goal has really been to just bring people in who want to play music and to get them playing. So one of the things I really love about Africa and uh, you know, South places where rhythm and, and music is part of the culture is that there's, there's, there's no real wall between performers and uh, audience members. 
So, for example, if you listen to those uh, Pagodji uh, songs on, you know, on YouTube, everybody's singing. And they all right. know it's, it's like a chorus of people. And, okay, sometimes that happens in the U.S. But for the most part, you go to concerts here and people sit quietly and listen. And, you know, in the streets of Africa, everybody's dancing and, and playing the drums. Now, there are other professional drummers, right, who play for, you know, the ballets and all that. Um, but in the communities, everybody's got this thing going on. The same thing in Brazil, right? You have all the blocos in the different, you know, um, you know parts of, of the city. And so the goal here was to bring people in and have everybody play music. So it doesn't matter what people's skill level is. Uh, the idea is just, just to get everybody playing and, and enjoying uh, playing. And so I've been doing that for 10 years. Uh, we did have a, a, a kind of a performance group that would come out of that. So um, I would pull the players who... Uh, who were better, um, only because maybe they'd spent more time with us. Uh, they came with a little more musical sensibility in the, to start with. And we would play um, most of the kind of larger gigs, which was really fun. You know, we got to open for um, Ozo Motley, which was one of my... Oh, fun, yeah. Yeah, we opened for the Whalers, which, by the way, they play... It's like the best, you know, Bob Marley cover band I have ever heard. They were really good. Sorry, that was my joke. Um <laughs> Uh, so we opened for the Whalers. We opened for uh, the Mickey Hart Band. So those were kind of a lot of great opportunities that kind of you know came our way. Uh, but for, for those gigs, you really want want to kind of nail it. You always get a few people who come in who, I mean, it's true. Some people really don't have any rhythmic sensibility, and <laughs> they may never get it. But we don't we don't kick them out of the band. They all come and play. But you don't want to open for Ozomotli with those players. <laughs> right. Do you have a beginner class? We don't. Um, okay. Everybody comes in. Um, we have a community group class, and I tell everybody that we don't slow down for, for new people. I said, so don't don't worry. You're not going to get it. Mm. You know, come in here, step with us. I have everybody step on the beat, um, so so that they they get a sense of where the the downbeats are. Because Brazilian music is this, you know this you know, this relationship with, with the downbeat where all, all the, the strong beats are kind of uh, outside of the downbeat. It's not like rock and roll where everything's, you know, one, two, three, four. So uh, people get lost very quickly. And to have them step, if they're not stepping with the whole group, they know when they're out. And I tell people that visual signal helps you know if you're like, you know, grass in the wind, but you're waving the wrong way. Just stop, stop playing, you know. And so that helps for beginners. And we, we, all, um, we all play on, on our regular community rehearsal night. And the performing group that's a little more advanced gets together on other nights to play. And that's typically, you know, I, I always tell people, if you're playing in this group, you're good enough for, for me to be able to talk to you honestly and say, look, you're not getting this, you need to work on that. In the community group, people's uh, egos can be a little more fragile just because culturally the way we, we treat art, you know, people feel like it's, if I say you're not getting that right, that I've just told them they're an idiot. There's no distinction between <laughs> those two statements in people's mind when you critique their art. So I want to build up their, their, their kind of egos around their, their music first. And when they're at a comfortable place where you can really kind of push them to learn more they get into the into the smaller performing group, and that's where we really try and push a lot harder to get people to be better. And Brian, how do you um, share your materials? How do I how do I get our materials? Share your materials. Do you use like a box dot com? Do you just? I mean, do people do a lot of recording within your own um, rehearsals? How do you sh how do you share? 
That's a great question because I've gone back and forth with this and um, I transcribe everything. I mean, I've, mm-hmm. I'm a trained musician and I, there's no way I could remember all this stuff if I don't write it out. So I have two binders full of 50 rhythms and all the parts. Um, so that's how I remember things. And actually, uh, um, Brian Davis told me this. He, he said that, I, I, maybe I'm misquoting him, so if I'm wrong, Brian, don't, don't hit me. <laughs> Um, he told me that he used to bring the transcriptions to uh, to the lines about the cut at rehearsal, and they just leave them there so people could see them. Um, but I don't give those to people. I leave them out so people can reference them and use them, and I bring them to every practice. Uh, but I ask people to bring recording devices, and also people will record with their iPhones. There was mm-hmm. some for a while. There was a movement within our group for people to uh, videotape them and put them on our website so that mm-hmm. other people could learn that way. It's been hard enough to organize just doing, getting the group moving that I didn't focus so much on doing that myself. It was just too much work. So we've done sure. a bunch of different things. I, I don't hand out written transcriptions, um, mostly because much of this comes from people. I, I don't want to share their work. Why I don't mind giving it to my players, but I don't want these people putting it on you know, the internet somewhere and handing oh, sure. out all of Dudu's work or Marco Santos's work. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but mostly people will will bring their phones and they will uh, record it either audio or video, either way. And also for yeah. a while we had sectionals where a section leader would go teach people all of their material. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned, a lot of times people don't necessarily all learn by by reading music, you know, they just need to hear it and learn it that way. You know, my, my favorite story about that is you can tell which are the kind of intellectual thinkers and which are the, the feelers. And, mm-hmm. and my, my personal opinion is you have to be both to be a really good musician. You cannot mm-hmm. play while reading music. Um, I, I, I've taught at the, the university here, and they're all, the percussion students are all very good you know, at reading their music, and you put a sheet in front of them, and they're, they're looking at it, and they're playing it, but it loses its feel. It's kind of sure. grittiness. So I never give them the music. I'm like, I have it here, but you can't see it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's interesting to watch these trained drummers kind of flip out because they're out of their comfort zone. And right. it's, it's really nice to get them to, to stop uh, just relying on that sight stuff. But I, I see uh, some people, I see their lips moving. They're like, one, two, three, four. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes I'll say, stop that. You need, to just, you need to just feel it and trust yourself now. And if you screw up, that's why we call it rehearsal. We'll just do it again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, coming from uh, West African dance, you know, that was my base. I kind of did the same thing. I just, I learned all the the breaks by ear. And um, same thing with Cuban as well, you know. Right. Uh, not being a trained musician. One of the funny stories at uh, this camp uh, that I have gone to for years, the California Coast Music Camp, uh, where I met Brian Rice, uh, they told a funny story about a Cuban uh, guitar player they had brought once years ago, and they pulled him aside one day and said, "Look, all the musicians here are kind of they're kind of Western trained, so they kind of want to know where the beat is. So if you could count them in, like you know, one, two, three, four, kind of thing." And he said, "Oh yeah, yeah, no problem." Next day he shows up in class and he goes, "Okay, everybody, we're going to start the song. One, two, three, four, five. <laughs> he, <laughs> he, he counted in in clave, and everyone just looked at him like, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> and all the West African uh, teachers, the good ones mm-hmm. who, who've stayed here long enough, realized that that they have to. The big joke is where's the one? That's what all the drummers are asking. And right. and the, the 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 guys who've been here for a while, the master drummers from Mali and Guinea, 
they all, they figure that out. They say, oh, well, this is what they're asking. Because they don't understand that. You ask them, where's the one? And they're like, what are you, what are you saying? <laughs> Mark Lamson told me something, I think, that, that and who I, I just adore Mark Lamson, by the way. He's, yes. you guys have interviewed Mark. He's, you guys have interviewed him, right? Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. that's what I thought. I haven't listened to that one. I need to go listen to that. <laughs> he, uh, he once said to me um, that, uh, that those styles of music, Cuban and uh, uh, African, it, it's a wheel. And you, all you need to do is learn how to get on and how to get off. And it doesn't matter where one, two, three, four are. It's, it's the intro in and the intro out. And, and I'm a very visual person. And I had a picture of that wheel. And I was just like, wow, that is so true. Of course, you know, Mark is always full of wonderful insights. So, Yeah, he's a great Resource. teacher. He has all this such good little phrases that he throws out there. Yeah, he's... You know, always contribute. Don't take away from the music. And, you know... Always, I don't know. It's he's great like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's one of those people who uh, I think with Mark you have to. We've had him out here a few times, and the first time he came out, people are like, "What?" They they just weren't at a level where they understood how how deep you know Mark is and his teaching style. As as you know, he he just jumps right in, and um, and afterwards people are starting to learn like, "Wow, that guy's incredible." I'm like, "Yep, <laughs> welcome to Mark Lampson." <laughs> So you were telling us about your your group a little bit about that. What kind of gigs do you guys do? Do you do a lot of local gigs? Yeah, we play uh, we in the summertime. In the summertime, we are often asked to play gigs every single weekend, and I have to balance these new players who come in who have never been in a band before and wanted to be rock and rollers, and they found samba and they love it, and they, they we have this community and they want to play gigs all the time um, with with the burnout. So we. I don't take gigs in the winter at all. We we go kind of dark usually about October first, and we won't gig until March. And then we'll start. We'll probably do mm-hmm. I don't know twenty five gigs for the year. So, wow. um, and we do. I've gotten to the point where we don't play for free. That's what I tell people. And this is how we fund the band. We've had all of you know the bateria leaders uh, have kind of these discussions. <laughs> Uh, we're at, luckily at a point where we have enough money to bring out teachers and do things that, that, we, uh, that we want to do with our money. So we will sometimes play for free, but I always make sure that the people who've asked us to play, I say to them, are you asking us to volunteer our time or is this a paid gig? So with that said, oftentimes people are like, oh, can you come play our 10K you know, at the finish line? Can you, um, you know, just all over the board. Uh, mm-hmm. we, we had a couple summers where we played a whole bunch of weddings. <laughs> We've been asked to play people's retirement parties. Uh, the city loves to have us come out. We often, like many groups, try and go out and play Renegade Samba uh, downtown. Uh, and we're, we've kind of become uh, an institution in town. Everybody knows who we are, which is, which is really nice. Uh, in the early days, um, I'll tell you one quick story. I'm probably digressing a little bit. But this is funny because it involved Marco Santos. The very first time we brought him out, we decided to go downtown and play. And we had probably 200, 250 people listening to us. And uh, we were surrounded by four police cars. (laughs) 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 And Marcus's eyes just got big. And I very quietly stopped the, you know, the plane. I ended what we're doing. And I told everybody, thank you, everybody. You know, have a nice night. And the police came up to me and they said, four police cars surrounded us. Wow. And they came up to me and they said, I guess as a preface to this, playing West African music, which I think often can, people have some type of kind of visceral reaction to it. And some people hate it. 
Yeah. And mm. yeah, maybe Dinah, you've experienced that. Uh, it's we used to play out in town, and the cops always showed up, always because somebody called yes. the police, and we started to know all of them very well. So I went and learned <laughs> the rules. Uh, and you don't need a permit, but the first thing they did is they came up and said, "Do you have a permit to play?" And I said, "Well, we don't need a permit to play." And they said, "If you don't have a permit, you're going to jail." And I said, "Well, you need." to learn the rule because I don't need a permit. <laughs> and they got kind of angry at me. And at one point I just let everybody go and I went up to the guy and I said, well, you know, just wanted to talk to him politely about it. And I couldn't hear him and I leaned in and put my hand on his shoulder and the policeman stepped back and he said, if you touch me again, you're going oh, to jail. No. And Jeez. I said, okay, we're done. So I ended up calling um, the police department to say, look, this, this, is, this is not cool. We're not a bunch of stoned hippies. You know, I study music, I'm a trained musician. I've, you know, been, I've had these musicians from all over the world that, that uh, uh, you know, I've, this was after Marcus left, by the way. He was horrified. He just wanted to get in the car and leave. He thought, <laughs> we're all going to jail. <laughs> but I ended up talking to the, uh, his advisor, supervisor who said to me, and I'll never forget this. He said, so um, what would you like to, you know, I'm gonna, about to go talk to Sergeant Jackson, I think was his name. What would you like to see the outcome of this be? And I said, well, I would like next time there's a problem. I had learned, by the way, that the problem was people were standing in the street and it was a, they were concerned about the safety of people in the street. Mm. I didn't know that. And I said, well, next time there's you know, a problem and we're playing and Sergeant Jackson comes by and he says, hey, you know, Brian, you got people in the street. I'll say, oh yeah, sorry, you know, take care of that. Uh, you know, how's it going, Sergeant Jackson? Oh, great, how about you, Brian? You know, have a nice day. You too, you know, nice to see you. I just did some kind of little role play like that. And there was probably five to 10 seconds of silence on the phone and the guy said, well, that seems like a really reasonable request. <laughs> he thought I was going to ask for the guy to be fired or something. And, and we have never in this town had a problem with anybody drumming, any musicians. The police don't stop them anymore. I think, and we've had police come out who are, um, who've had noise complaints. They come out and they look at us and they say, oh, such a great group. You got kids out here. How's it going? Oh, by the way, we had a noise complaint. When are you guys going to be done? <laughs> so um that's nice yeah i'm sorry i completely digressed no I, I that's <laughs> interesting i mean we talk about that actually a lot on this show about how um that's one thing that kind of holds groups back in the states is like you start practicing and even if you're like in a community center and the windows are open people call the cops yeah and they're gets, they're, requ old. they're required by law to show up because I, mm. I i asked them one time we had somebody we we played uh, in the summer times we rehearse in a park and I've been told that people, you know, they can hear us all over town, but very, very quietly. You know, if they go inside and close the doors, they can't hear us uh, because the, the park is kind of above town. And I've been told by many people that they look forward to the summer where they can get their gin and tonic and sit out on their porch and listen to us in the distance. But one summer, somebody hated us and they called in a noise complaint every single time we started. And they wouldn't identify themselves, so the police couldn't do anything, but they were required by the law to come out. And they even got tired of it. They said, why don't you get a permit? And I said, okay, how do I do that? And they said, well, just go down and get a permit so we don't have to keep coming out here. He said, what you're doing is great, but we have to come out. And I asked them when I went down to get a permit, I said, well, is there, you know, is there some type of decibel? I can get a decibel meter. And they said, well, really there isn't. If there's a complaint, we have to come. And I said, well, I explained what we were doing. I said, we don't, it's not really, you know, they said, it's not really something you need a permit for. And they said, who's the group? And I said, Sambatuki. And the woman looks at me at the police station and said, oh, we love you guys. <laughs> I'm like, okay, well, don't send your police out anymore. They're, they're just bored, you know. <laughs> 
So it is nice. I really do think music builds community. And it, so I feel like we've, we've kind of established or accomplished that part of our mission, which is to, is to really bring that out to people. And everybody knows in town that anybody can come play with us. And I really, mm. really encourage that. Is that a way you recruit people? Have a lot of people joined by just seeing you in the streets playing? Yes. Some of my uh, best players saw us downtown and just heard it and said, oh, I've got, I've got to play in this group. And they came up and they talked to one of the members or talked to me. And uh, we told them when rehearsal times were and they showed up and they've you know been with us for years. In fact, we've nice. gotten most of our players that way. Hmm. How do you, I think a lot of groups struggle with, um, you know, having, um, a, you know, a, a group that's made out of beginners, you kind of have to reach a critical mass of people who are accomplished players to be able to sound good and attract players who are already percussionists, you know what I'm saying? Which is kind of what everybody wants. But I guess what, what my question is, is like, how did you bridge that gap when you first started? Because obviously you're probably all beginners and then you started out, you probably didn't sound that great, but then you kind of built up slowly. But, you know, a lot of times if you're a beginner group, you have people who are better kind of leave out the top and you always got new people coming in. Do you have any strategies for growing a group getting better does my question make sense <laughs> oh yeah oh no that, that's that's a question that uh that we all you know we all struggle with um and i don't know that there's like an an answer that works for everybody uh, i can tell you that in flagstaff we uh we don't have many professional musicians here. It's a small town and the pay is not good enough to keep great players here. So we have mm -hmm. a, a tier of really good players that a very small group that kind of makes their living as professional musicians. And then there's a whole bunch of kind of quasi-professional mu musicians who make their money elsewhere. So with, uh, with you know, of course, they, they play for gigs, they make money, but they have a day job, I guess is the way to put it. Yeah, right. so, so with that said, um, it, it is difficult to, to get good drummers coming in and and to keep them but i think you can also train them people come in with musical sensibility and if you give them a part that that they can really hold on to and start to grow as a musician it's not it's not that hard to sound good the place where you have difficulty is on the instruments that are challenging on the snare players you know the mm -hmm. kaisha players if you don't have people that are trained on kaisha it can kill a band. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so that's one place. If I get somebody coming in who's a kit player, I mean, my first question is, oh, have you played a, a kit before? Do you have you know, experience with, with sticks? And if they say yes, I take them right to the snare drum. And if we can keep them there. I have lost um, kit drummers because they come in and they realize they don't control the whole sound of the rhythm. And, mm. it, and it irks them to not be able to, to, to control everything. They're just playing mm. one part. Um, but I think you can sound, you can sound pretty good, pretty quickly. Uh, obviously you're not going to sound like, you know, Mosadaji or, <laughs> but, sure. but remember those people too, they're not trained musicians. They show up from the favelas and the streets and, and they come in and they work really hard at it, but they were not, they didn't go to school to study music. They're, they're kids and adults that go in that train really hard on that instrument. And I think we can do the same thing here. And that's, that's what I try and do. Is, but you have to sound good enough to keep people. So right. I, I get nervous about playing gigs where we're going to sound bad. And I, I will often nix those if we don't have an, a, a good mix of players, mm. if we don't have the right set of people. If, if uh, I'll just say we're not playing this gig. Because if we sound bad out there a few times, people will be like, well, I don't really want to go play with them. <laughs> yeah, right. 
I don't know if that answered your question. No, but, I did. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Do people get um, beginners that you're going to do a show and you had said earlier, you kind of leave the, you uh, take the better players. Do people get, how do you deal with that? Do people get kind of their egos hurt? Um, it's gone through cycles. And, you know, I can tell you in the early days I had everybody under, under 30 and we played in the bars till three in the morning and people got ripper and drunk. Um, yeah, it was, I mean, I, I actually, at one point I developed a contract for people because I, you know, I, I told people, I said, look, you know, you, you can't get drunk before you play. Mm. And if you want to get mm-hmm. drunk afterwards, take your shirt off that identifies you as part of this band <laughs> and go get ripper and drunk. <laughs> I actually had security at the Oza Motley concert, uh, find me and say, one of your players needs to be removed. And, oh. Uh, Oh, and I'll tell you one of the more embarrassing moments is is I had a player get really drunk when we played the vagina monologues at the end, and that was pretty insensitive. Uh, and I had the producer come talk to me, and, and I, it was indefensible. Uh, so I feel it all always reflects on me. And so uh, that was that was a tangent. Um, to, to answer your question, um, so there there is some tension sometimes, and I tell everybody. Uh, and we've we've done some historical things. Like at one point, I said, "Okay, we're going to do auditions," and I feel like auditions are bad because if you put people out in public, it's really kind of difficult for them, and it scares them, and it makes them feel bad. And so, what I tell people now, this is what I've tried to do: is that I have section leaders, and that section leaders have have the control of their section, and they have the prerogative to come to me and say, "I want this player to play in the small group with us." And so, we find people who. Um, uh, who fit kind of three categories, and and I really like this. Um, uh, Neil Gaiman actually said this in a in a uh, um, commencement address at some art school. He said, "When you get out and get a job, you should be really, really good at what you do. You should um, show up on time and or get your work done on time, and you should be really easy to work with, or do two out of three. And so <laughs> that's what I do in my band. You know, I say I want players that are really easy to work with." that are fantastic players and that are really responsible. So when I say we're going to play at this gig, they show up on time, they tell me on our gig sheet that they're showing up Mm. or they do two out of three. So Mm -hmm. I have players that are super (laughs) responsible that, um, that are really great fun people and they're not the strongest players and everybody knows it, but they're so wonderful to be around and they help so much that we want them part of our smaller group. Mm. And I, I'm, I'm transparent (laughs) about all this stuff. I tell people, this is, this is how you get in. It's not an old boys club or an old, you know, people's club. We, you just practice your stuff and show that you want to be here. And, and, uh, and the other rule I have in this small group is that if you are the only person in your section, you must be able to hold down your section by yourself. You can't rely on the person next to you to know the parts and copy them. Yeah. So, and, and if you fit that criteria, then we'll get you into the small group. We want people to be in the small group because it's more, it's more um, depth for us. You know, if I have five thirty players and two of them can't show up, the other three can. If I only have three and two of them can't show up, I can't, I can't play the game. Mm-hmm. And I just, I'm just, we're just transparent about it. And that way when people you know, I haven't had any problems in the last five or six years about people saying that they want to be in the small group and they feel like they're being shut out. And of course, those lines get blurry when your group shrinks and all of a sudden there really isn't a performing group anymore because it's the same as the community group where we haven't had any new players in a few years that that line gets blurry. And we're in a phase right now where the line is very blurry and, and we're not as strong as we've been in the past. And people really want that distinction to occur again because we mm-hmm. have players performing with us who really probably shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. it comes and goes it's always work yeah yeah 
I think that's true with every every group. Right. You know, at, at uh, the Brazil camp, we used to have a meeting after lunch of all of the Bateria leaders where people right, would sit right. down and ask questions of, of each other. And you guys have been to those, haven't you? Do you remember when we did that? I remember those uh, sessions. I don't know if I actually went to them because I was dancing more, but I remember them. Yeah, it was super helpful. You, you talked to people who had done this for years, and um, it was really helpful to get advice from, from some of the uh, kind of more experienced leaders. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I feel like a lot of the community groups have been crumbling uh, in this country. It's, it's just too much work for one person to shoulder, and they only seem to go on for so long. Huh. Who Can you give me some examples of people who have stopped? Um, well, the lines of Batucarias into community, it doesn't even exist anymore, right? They work. Well, they kind of morphed, the members morphed into Bloco Alegria, so it's different leadership, but um, it's still, a lot of the people are the same. Still a community group. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Um, there was one in Phoenix that um, uh, that Porangi had, and he morphed that into Liberdaji, which was only a performing mm-hmm. group because it was just too difficult uh, to maintain teaching people all the time. Obviously, there's yeah. no money in it. We don't do it for money. I, I don't get paid right. at all. It's all volunteer. Um, so you do it for the love. And sometimes, you know, sometimes you get drained. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. It's a lot of work. Yeah. And just a lot of like soul. <laughs> too. Yeah. Yeah. And it feels yeah. like if you don't bring in your big, big happy face that that can sometimes, you know, affect the band emotionally. So you mm-hmm. you, you got to sit down and prep yourself like you're going out for a sporting event and show up to your <laughs> <laughs> now you do work with um the other groups in arizona as well though like for workshops and such we do yeah um mm-hmm. batukashe uh as you know no longer exists they morphed into solashe um and uh there's another group forming in dobson that um uh that is just being put together which is joe goglia if i don't know mm-hmm. if you met him oh, yeah. right. he's yeah. got a group and he's, he's such a great talented player too and so he's got a kind of a community group that he's putting together but he started with really you know young drummers that he'd trained because he was a high school band teacher high school percussion teacher so he's now trying to decide you know uh how to morph that into a community group and running into a lot of these challenges i think too mm-hmm. <laughs> So we try and do stuff together. We certainly share, um, you know, when we bring people out here, we try and share travel costs, uh, teachers. Um, we try and do, um, we try and do uh, events together. We've driven down to do the Monsoon Mania in Tucson to help them fundraise. So uh, we definitely, I mean, as you know, Samba is a small, it's a small world. So we all kind of know each other. Right. And speaking of your members, do you, I can't remember if you brought very many to camp this year. Yeah, we had a pretty big crowd this year. Yeah, you I guys think, had a lot of people. Yeah, yeah we, I think we had like seven players. Oh, which, wow. And I, I feel like that's one of my biggest coups is getting my players to come to camp. I went to Brazil camp for years by myself, which was super stressful because I'd, you know, take like, a, you know, Dudu's class or go to the events bateria, record it. Uh, actually, this is the funny thing. I'll just give you one example. I would go to Dudu's class, for example, and I would play Hapiki on day one. I'd play Kaisha on day two. I'd play Third Sudu <laughs> on day three, and and everyone's looking at me like you suck, you know, because right. I wouldn't. But I had to play each one, and I had to record each part. And mm-hmm. I would go home and take a week break, and I would sit down and transcribe everything, because wow. you you can't yeah. you can't come home with half the parts and play it. 
Yeah. So it was camp was so much, so much work for me. And now uh, when we go, I'm like, okay, who's on what instrument? <laughs> Learn your part and record it. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was so much easier because camp then becomes so much more fun for, for me as well. I get to stay on one instrument, enjoy the performance, not, right. feel, not feel stupid that I'm missing half of it, <laughs> that I was on three different instruments last, you know, few days. And, right. Yeah. That's, that's funny. I've had a similar experience, actually, trying to get everything down from every class and, and how stressful that is. And then now that I go with the Bloco Alegria people, I don't have to do any of that. <laughs> there's, there's started to be some movement too, to share materials with each other, mm-hmm. right? which mm-hmm. I think is, is really nice. I actually just transcribed uh, Dudu's work, uh, stuff from camp this past year. And I've been meaning to send it to some people that, that wanted that, that stuff. And, and of course it's like, you know, please look this over and see if I missed it. Cause there's right, so yeah. much going on. <laughs> yeah. Plus that lends to the opportunity, say if you're visiting another area and they're, they are doing that, you can, you can join in and play if, you know, yeah. possible. Well, I, I also believe that if you put out the good karma, it, it comes back for you at some point. If you turn around and offer that to people they're going to turn around and offer you something when when you need it or missed it, and it's just part of that. I think totally. part of that community that that you that you want to be a part of. You gotta you gotta build it, right? Yeah. And, and so many of us have been there for so many years. We know, we know that it you know it's all within our own community, and it's, it's it, we're not going to be making any money off of it. Definitely, I, I think the teachers have kind of learned that as well. I remember early on, some of the early days, teachers were like, well, I don't know if I want to put my material out here and. And when I used to transcribe, oh, just for example, Dudu, when I would transcribe his material, we learned uh, um, uh, Sitsi Pankadas a year ago. I don't know if you remember that right, rhythm. Right, right. I, I wrote all that out when he did it from a workshop. I turned around and sent it to him. I said, here's, here's what I transcribed from your workshop. <laughs> I wanted him to have a copy of it. And, and uh, you know, he, he said, oh, that, that looks right. Thank you. And, and I just, I, I, I told him, you know, I'll, I'll give you transcriptions of everything of yours that I've transcribed and I've transcribed about nine of your rhythms. <laughs> and, and also to know that it stays here with me. I don't turn around and hand that out to people, but I want him to have a copy of what I've done with his, with his work. Mm-hmm. So, and some of his older rhythms that, you know, he changes and transforms. I, I still like some of the simplicity of some of his simpler, just, we just played for Day of the Dead. We did, led the Day of the Dead parade here in Flagstaff and we played uh, kind of a mishmash of all the EJ Shaws that we know. And we played uh, Dudu's original EJ. I don't know if it's his original, but the one he taught us, gosh, I don't know, six six years ago. And it's it's simple and it's just nice and it's powerful. I think he doesn't do that anymore. I think it's too simple for him. <laughs> <laughs> he was saying at camp this year, somebody made an announcement because people were uh, video recording the parts. Mm-hmm. And he made, someone made a, a big announcement at the end. Oh, you guys shouldn't record the parts. And then later he was like, I want people to play it right. Like I want them to have what they need. I want them to record the parts. I mean, not all teachers are like that. Right. But um, he definitely was wanting people to actually be able to play it right and to go home and be able to show their groups and play it correctly. Yeah. In a, yeah. He's like, why did that guy say that? I was like, I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think he was trying to kind of, you know, keep with camp policy right yeah well of course but dudu is dudu is a very smart man you get to know him he's he's figured out you know how things work and what people want and i have nothing but you know respect for that guy he's he's really an incredible player and and it's you know he looked at that and said well these people want to play my music i want them to do it right let them record Mm -hmm. yeah yeah (laughs) 
So are you guys a nonprofit? How do you, um, the, the money you make goes back into teachers and things like that or? Yeah, that's a, it's funny. I, I uh, um, people always, I've had many people come into my group and say, you know, we should be a nonprofit. We can get donations. We can get grants. And my response has always been, why? If, if mm-hmm. I don't want more money, if we don't need it. So, because it just comes with more burdens. So that means, you know, if we, we are very lucky in the sense that, and and I'll compare us to Solache down in Tucson. They are hamstrung by the fact that they have to pay a lot of money for a rehearsal space. And so they require people Mm -hmm. to pay because they have to. Nobody's making any money, but, but rehearsal space is always a big, big topic. And we, um, we play in the park in the summertime when the weather is nice. And I did this for years when I started my group is to play where it was cheap. And we have a, a charter school here in town that we pay $50 a month to rehearse. And we Wow, that's really cheap. It's really cheap. And and I at one point I thanked him. I said, you've been really supportive in letting us use this facility. And he's like, we love having you here. It, it, it's a Waldorf school. So, you know, Waldorf has different ideas about education. But they said, we feel like you bring really good energy to our building and we like having you be a part of this community. And of course, anytime they ask us to do anything, they, they do a fundraiser in the spring. We're like, oh yeah, we'll come play for free. Yeah, you know, yeah, we'll awesome. support you. You're supporting us. Mm-hmm. And so we don't have to spend that much money um, to pay our rent. And actually, we, we had a space here, uh, the Indigenous um, Center for Indigenous Music and uh, Culture. I think that's what it was called. Um, I'm going to mess up the own. Well, <laughs> so it doesn't exist anymore. But we had a building space and they asked if we would come rehearse there and I said yes we'll do that but we can't we can't pay you a lot of money to rehearse and they said well you're doing exactly what our mission is is to bring cultural music and indigenous music to the people for cheap or for free which is exactly what we do we don't charge our members anything and I played around with that model too you know have people pay have people not pay but having people pay is really more about commitment and that's mm. that's really what I was trying to get is commitment. Mm-hmm. So we we went halfway through the incorporation as a as a nonprofit, abandoned the efforts to do it because um, there's paperwork involved with it. Uh, so we we don't do that. We but we do have uh, a DBA, so people can write a check to uh, the band and say Sambatuki, and we can cash that. In the early days, the checks were all written to me. They went into my bank account. I had a separate spreadsheet that had all <laughs> of yeah, the band. Well, yeah. And at some point, I would there were a couple people in the band. I'd pull them aside once a month and say, I, just for transparency, here's the money we have and here's what I spend it on. And nobody seemed to care, but I, I didn't. I wanted to make sure that somebody right. knew. And I've now handed this off to a guy in our band who who is kind of our treasurer. Checks come in, I hand them to him. I, I tell him, you know, what I'm spending money on. He can also do it. Um, but there's three of us that kind of manage that. And that way, when people come to me and talk about money, I just point my finger at someone else. I want to be the yeah. creative director that plays the music. Money's over there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even if you get grants, you know, it sounds like, oh, that's great. You're a nonprofit. You get grants. You still have to do all the reporting and everything that goes along with that. It's kind of a pain. It, it comes with chains. And yeah. my goal has been to play music in this group, not um, to make money or have to earn money for any reason. And our, our focus has always been on the music and never been on the money. And we've just mm-hmm. been really lucky. We've built up a good sum of money over time. People are willing to pay us, you know, a couple hundred bucks a gig or 50 bucks. You know, I tell people just something. And we get asked to play enough that we, that we build up enough money to bring out two teachers every year. 
And that's what we do. And if we have too much money in the bank, I try and get rid of it. I don't want to have any money in the bank. (laughs) It's there to, you know, spend on drums or fix drums. This year was the very first year that we subsidized people going to camp, which was great. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. And actually, it was the first year that that my band paid for me to go to camp. And I didn't pay for it myself. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it felt like we kind of hit hit a milestone. Uh huh. So money's money's always always a big challenge. And actually, the one real nice thing is we had a benefactor in town this year who uh, donated some money, two thousand dollars to us. Wow. Uh, Yeah, because we've played some gigs for him. We've you know he he loves what we do. We played at his wedding. He's kind of a friend of a friend in the band, and and uh, we've always tried to support him as part of the community. And one day he said, "I want to give you guys some money." Oh, <laughs> so that was really nice. Yeah, you know, sometimes with I know like nonprofits, a pain like we just talked about, but some gigs, you know, you're required to have insurance to yeah to play. I don't play those gigs, or actually, mm. we, we did do one for the university here, and they said you need insurance, and we said you're going to have to pay for it. And they said, well, mm. we'll pay for it, but you have to get it. Just add it on to the contract for cost. Mm. And, hmm. and, you know, it was a couple hundred bucks. So they paid us yeah. 200 and they paid $200 more for insurance. Hmm. So I just, I just, I feel everything is just about being transparent. You know, I yeah. tell people we're a nonprofit. We use this money for these things. Nobody gets paid. This is what, you know, you, you have to pay us something so we can manage our instruments. And if you want insurance, you're going to have to pay for it. <laughs> we'll we'll yeah. find it, but you're going to pay for it. Yeah. Hey, Brian, speaking of instruments, are most of the instruments yours or do people buy their own? Um, the instruments mostly belong to the band. So the band mm-hmm. has bought them. When we started, I ordered uh, instruments and bought them myself. So I started by investing about $500 in the band and I, over a course of about four years, got paid back. Um, but we, we buy all uh, the surdues. And actually, some great advice I got from Brian Rice is uh, uh, that the band should own the instruments that like big instruments like surdues because if somebody else buys their surdue and brings it in they're entitled to play it and if you want to move them to another instrument it's really hard to do <laughs> and sometimes sometimes you really don't want those people i mean derailing the group by banging really hard on you know, on a, on a surdu. So you want to say, hey, why don't, why don't you come over here and play something else? Interesting. I've never heard of that strategy. So we bought all the surdus and I buy some, because <laughs> <laughs> it's one thing the band owns all of them. Um, and I buy all the kaishas. So the band owns the kaishas and the surdus. And I buy some bells and, and, and uh, uh, tambourines so that people can play those who come. But I tell people that if you're on a small instrument, like a tambourine, if you're going to mm-hmm. stay there, you should buy your own at some point. And right. same thing with same thing with bells. I don't I don't buy hapikis and, and chimbaos. If people are going to play those and they're advanced enough, they need to own their own. I own three chimbaos, so I always have one to loan. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, that's just kind of part of getting better at your instrument is owning it and kind of getting to know it. You know exactly. Yeah, and, and yeah. you know the surdu. Uh, it's interesting because. It's not so much about, that's where I always have the battles in the band is sometimes people come in and they get bored and they're like, oh, well, that's too easy. And I I steal all sorts of things from teachers at camp. Uh, Another Brian Rice story, you know, it's like I tell people that every, the beginning of every measure is a new song. Bring that energy to it with every beat. And, you know, the the story of, of the fact that, you know, uh, I, I think it was uh, Jacare who told me the story that, that down in Brazil, 
um, that one time he tried to pick up, and again, I'll apologize if Jacques Day is listening and, and <laughs> I'm butchering his story, but it's a wonderful story. He said uh, he picked up the surdu to play, and the director had everybody stop and switch instruments and kept doing that until he got off the surdu. And, <laughs> and he said that they don't want people walking in and playing surdu because it's, it's such the heartbeat of the band that nobody can screw that up. And even in the advanced bateria, when Georgi was leading, he never paid attention to the first and seconds. They were expected to, to play properly and in the right place. And any time they screwed up, he would just stop and look at you like, you know, like the, <laughs> the sky had fallen. And th- that's how important <laughs> it is. And I, I tell every time we, you know, screw up, it's usually the Surdu's fault. And I'll stop the band and I'll say, whose fault was it? And everybody says, oh, the Surdu's. So I want the Surdu's to understand how important that is, even though the technique is not perhaps that hard. There's, you can get into some of Dudu's arrangements where you really need tec- technique on the thirds. Um, but you, people can go home and practice that. You know, and I always tell people what you should all be doing is buying a set of sticks and practicing your paradiddles. That's really what you need to do. Mm-hmm. Well, and if you, I, I have a problem too. It when people say that they're bored of playing second surdu or first surdu, and it, to me, if if you're bored, you're not playing it right. Like it's a hard. I find it to be a difficult instrument to play correctly because you have to maintain focus and it's physically difficult, and you just have to really be in there and know where you're at. Because if you're just sort of spacing out and banging along you're you're probably late you're probably not playing it right you are absolutely correct with, with the intention and the energy it takes to play it correctly yeah I, I, the best musicians have i think have to be on the surdu because they have that internal clock and they're not relying on anybody else and that that is a true musician who can feel the beat and stay right there in the pocket and it's hard though because in america we all have attention deficit disorder you know <laughs> yeah. we need to play breaks every 2 minutes cuz nobody wants to right. groove just right. on the rhythm for a while and the surdu players are like oh i'm just playing this <laughs> and that's always the challenge with surdu players i think you know and i have a rule in my band that you can't play third unless you know all the parts on first and second which mm-hmm. for the most part isn't you know they're they're less challenging in that respect yeah. but yeah. sometimes i need my third players in a gig to go play the other parts cuz i don't sure. don't have them yeah do you have any members who just have been playing forever and just aren't quite getting it? <laughs> you know, how do you deal with that? How do you, I think everybody has that. Yeah. These heartbreaking, tragic people who, who you really want, you know, they're valuable members of the group and they, you know, they're always helping out in other ways, but just cannot yeah. play. Well, you know, I'll tell you, I have learned everything by Braille and often the hard way. I learned how to, you know, charge or not charge by going through these different phases of that. I've learned how to control drama in the group because of, you know, mm. learned by Braille. But I'll tell you one story about somebody who came into our group and, and it ties in with a story I said, you know, about Brian not letting people, you know, told me not to let people uh, buy their surdues. This woman showed up, said she'd been playing. I shouldn't even say that. Uh, this person showed up and said she had, oh, I blew it again, um, had been <laughs> had been playing, you know, had been playing music for a long time. And um, and I said, great, you know, come on, join the group and wanted to play surdu, bought, uh, you know, bought their own surdu and showed up and had been playing with us for a very long time and really didn't have much sense of, of kind of the beat at all. And the interesting thing is that when people don't know where the beat is or aren't good rhythmically, they often think they're playing the right thing but aren't really trained enough to understand that they're actually not. So when you go over yeah. and point out that this is what you're supposed to play, they say, that's what I did play. And I'm like, well, yeah. no, you didn't. And this person was in our performing group. And, and then I also learned, well, what do you do with – that's the one time we had rehearsals was really to – 
try and point out to this person that, you know what, you're not quite at the level you need to be. So made all sorts of, of mistakes. Um, and what I do now is those people are always welcome to come. They never really get into the performing group. And most of them at some point come for the community anyways. They mm-hmm. want to be in the community. Or some of them are much more self-deprecating and have more skill than they give them, you know, the sure. say they do. And, and they're very careful not to mess things up. Um, but for the most part, uh, we, we bring the best players in. And now because, th- we, because there's those kind of barriers to get into the performing group, the community group is still open to everybody. And in the community group, you have more people, and that person who's kind of off the beat really just gets drowned out in rehearsal, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. They're part of our community. They love it. They come, and that's where they stay. Yeah. Does the community group do performances at all, like parades or anything, or is it just the performing, the small group? We do, um, uh, officially, we do two a year. We do the 4th of July parade here, and that's all community group, and we do um, the fair, uh, the county fair. And, mm. and so, and that's actually our biggest paying gig that funds most of our uh, expenses for the year. And that's also mm. a community group gig, but it's kind of a weird thing where we wander amongst all of the, uh, uh, you know, the fairgrounds amongst the rides and play randomly. So it's, huh. it's a low hanging fruit. So it's easy yeah. to get new players in and they love it. Um, and most people don't stay in, in my, in my community group for long. They, they come and they play and they get the bug and they become good enough to be in the performing group or their interests go somewhere else and they don't stay. So mm-hmm. it's really just a, it, it's a, it's like a waiting place for a few months where they get the skill level to come into the performing group or leave. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you said something about drama. How do you deal with drama? <laughs> it's a big question for everybody, you know? Yeah. Well, um, I've learned two things and I had one huge, huge dramatic uh, event um, years ago, when I started this band, I, I played in uh, Ashe, which was a West African group. And I realized uh, after my friend Dan McMillan, who I learned from, left, he was a leader of the group. He moved to, to Pittsburgh. And when he left, I realized that there was a pecking order and I was at the bottom. It had nothing to do with skill level. It had to do more with, you know, I, I find West African to be a, a lot more macho. And yeah. Yeah. And I didn't care about that. I was just happy to play. I was the old guy out there, you know, at 32, just jamming on my drum and holding. I had no desire to be a lead drummer. I was happy to hold down the rhythm. Um, and when he left, I thought, oh, gosh, it's going to be hard for me to start a samba group here because I am not in the community the leader of drumming. I'm I'm the bottom of the totem pole. So I called up Dan and said, Dan, uh, why don't you come out here? I'll give you all the material, teach a workshop for eight weeks, and officially hand me the reins. <laughs> <laughs> and he did. Um, but I, I still, there was one guy who kind of felt like he was really the leader of the group, and he wasn't. Um, and I had a lot of drama, lots of drama with him. At one point, he, we had a big gig. Uh, it was our first kind of outing with all the other groups when Batuka Shea was still around. We played at the Instrument Museum down in Phoenix. And uh, just a huge like fight between him and somebody else in the group. And everybody, I mean, this is literally 30 seconds before we're going to go out and play. And oh, every, we walked out and everybody had that shell-shocked look on their face. Yeah. And, yeah. and I was like, oh, Mr. Energy. I was so drained at the end of that. I was just trying to get everybody excited. And, and it worked. We sounded good. But I learned uh, from that that my weakness as a leader is that uh, I, don't, I don't love conflict and I, I avoid it. But when I get pushed hard enough for conflict, I jump in. But I often jump in too late. And so I've tried to step in 
earlier when things are kind of getting out of control. Mm-hmm. But but I also find that um, that uh, you reflect the behavior you want. So in the early days, we attracted a lot of people who had that kind of overdramatic, crazy, you know, uh, personality because they liked this one guy who ultimately left our group. And it was kind of a mutual agreement. He's still a friend of mine. I support him sometimes. He supports me. But we <laughs> realize we don't want to play together. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, once that happened, the people who joined the group, uh, I'm very drama-free. I'm an even-keel person. Uh, most of those people who come in reflect my personality. And mm. they keep they know I don't want any drama. And people deal with it themselves. If there is something really going on that needs to be handled, somebody will come to me. But they're all embarrassed that it's made it all the way up to me. And that's it's taken me 10 years to get to that point. <laughs> mm-hmm. But that's the way I've, I've handled the band. And I, I will occasionally step in. Um, it's, it, you know, it, our dramas really are, we have a whole range of people. We have a bunch of teenagers right up to people who are in their 60s. And I love having that yeah. kind of age range. And it's great to see like the older people rib the 20 year olds <laughs> for just being stupid like doing dumb drunk things and the 50 year olds are like that's just stupid you know <laughs> so yeah. it's kind of like they have this extended parents that are in there telling them how dumb they are but it's not binding like they're real it's a parent. true community though it sounds like yeah. i mean yeah, that's the functioning of a true community it's 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 really nice and we've been pretty drama free there's always personality conflicts with people and they've learned uh, to kind of deal with those on their own but little things yeah. happen, like sometimes, you know, we end up drinking too much. And, you know, it's happy hour right before, you know, band practice. And at some point I say, look, you know what, we need to tone this down. I don't mind what's going on, but there's people here who, you know, we have kids and everything. Let's let's do this afterwards, okay? <laughs> people can yeah. go home and like, oh, okay. <laughs> so it's fine. Uh, and it's taken a long time, but I, I truly believe you, you need to reflect in your own leadership what you want in your band. So you got to be the role model for what you want people to you know, to how you want them to behave. And some people's personalities, they just don't see that. And they, they do, uh, they do kind of weird things. Uh, Like, you know, I I truly believe a good leader, you probably heard the, I love quotes, apparently. Uh, Lao Tzu talks about uh, good leaders are, bad leaders are hated, good leaders are feared, and great leaders are invisible. So I I always try and um, be invisible. I want my people to feel empowered, to think that they did it on their own. But when people get to a certain level, they realize that I was always standing there kind of holding them up. So when I have people lead for me, I always set them up to succeed. I never, I never give them hard stuff. I make sure that they have all the tools they need to be successful. Um, and if people don't trust me about the rhythm, we have resources. They can go look it up. And my favorite story about that is Georgie Martin was here and everyone's like, well, you know, I don't think that's what we were playing. I don't think that's right. Let's go look at the video. I'm like, okay, we'll look at the video. And somebody finally looked at it and said, they were all looking at it. Somebody said, well, that, that's, that's what Coop was just showing us. And I said, yeah, yeah. but now you guys know. You, you believe me. Right. So, but, but it's hard because you, you have to build the respect and that takes time. And I had times where people questioned my ability and now they don't. If I make a mistake in my band, somebody will stop and say, this beat's right here. And I'll go, oh, thank you. you know, and we fix it. So there's, yeah. it, that to me is... It's, it's hard to get to that point where you can make a mistake and everybody still respects you. <laughs> yeah. So uh, you said you guys bring in two teachers a year. Who are your teachers that you've brought in in the past? Um, we, uh, the first person we brought out was Brian Rice years ago because uh, I wanted to thank him for, you know, for really 
kind of introducing me to the whole world. And he's such, he's an inspiration for me because coming out of the West African scene, I thought, oh man, I need to be kind of nuts and crazy to be a drummer. And I met Brian Rice and thought, this guy is such an even keel, cool dude. I I can be a drummer and be like him. (laughs) So we, we brought him out first. um, And uh, let me see. We've had Jorge Martin out a few times. Uh, we bring Marco Santos out as much as possible. We're one of the the uh, the longest surviving Grooversity groups, so I've, mm. we've been playing his music forever. Um, Dudu Fuentes, uh, Pitoco, we just uh, brought out. Thank you, Diana, for arranging all of that. Um, and gosh, who else have we brought out? I know the list mm. is much longer than that. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's been going on for 10 years so um oh we had um gosh i've forgotten the other manakatu teacher that was here that oh um Nino? Nino. yes we brought Nino out um uh, who else have we had out georgie alabe we've never brought georgie alabe and it's one of those things where i've been afraid to bring him because I want to make sure that, I mean, he's such a sweetheart, but I, I want to make sure that, that my group is just strong and good. And when he shows up, I want to be proud. And, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, 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 you know, but the is hard to play. And I yeah. always struggle with having uh, Kaisha players who are, who are strong enough to hold that down. Um, so that's one of the mm-hmm. things that I'd love to do is bring, bring Georgie Alabe. We had Cabello come out, who's, um, he, he's mostly... Uh, People probably don't know him. He's he's uh, mostly a, um, a uh, gosh, I'm losing it. Uh, martial arts capoeira. He's a Cabello is a capoeira instructor, and he studies with uh, um, oh, capoeira. Yeah, Jorge Alabe, and he's he's kind of known as the sambista of the cap- capoeiristas. So we've played with him. Super nice guy, super respectful, and he's done a couple of workshops. and And he mostly helped us. You know, he's he's Brazilian, so he's like, let's. You know, I just want to help you with the Brazilian feel. You guys know, you know, lots of music as much as I do, but let's work on the feel. And um, so, yeah, uh, oh, oh, of course, Mark Lampson. We've had Mark Lampson out here a couple times. And um, gosh, uh, I should have written them down, but um, uh, it just feels like everybody, and mostly they come from camp. So when people come to camp and they're touring, I, I, I got us on the list. It's like, call us up. We have money. <laughs> we'll bring people here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, Boko Alegria just had Georgie Alabe come up, and we had um, a lot of new material that we had, we've, we're trying to incorporate into the group. So all we really wanted him to do was just clean us up. So he spent a lot of time just, like, working different sections, and we played, you know, continuously for the entire probably three hours just <laughs> playing hard and fast and, you know, had him kind of show people the feel of it and what it should sound like. It was really, it was really good. So we didn't actually take on any new material. Oh, that's, it was that's, really helpful. That's a great way to do things. Yeah. I think one of the reasons to bring out people, well, for me, it's always been twofold. I, I always tell everyone, look, I'm, I have learned this stuff from other people and you're learning it through me. And I'm not really yeah. the teacher of this. Yeah. I'm, and so I want you to meet the people who have taught me this stuff. And that's one of the reasons that yeah. I bring them out is that I can teach some of their material, but I, you know, I probably mess it up. I don't get the feel right. And it's also, it's also their material. And to, to bring those people out, it's more inspiring than learning it from me. And, and then it also becomes 
I think it opens many of my players' eyes when they meet, you know, Dudu Fuentes or Jorge Martin came out twice and spent a week with us. Um, and he is such a wonderful, I mean, he's, he's all about heart and he'll go off on his lectures about community and, and people are like, wow, you know, this guy's the real deal. <laughs> uh, but the other thing too, is that it inspires the group. You know, when you bring somebody out, they're just like, wow, that was great. We need to, <laughs> we need to practice. And so, yeah, we should, we should bring Jorge Alabe out. Uh, he's, he's, uh, I'd really love to do that. It's been on my list for years. And I figure after 10 years, if I can't do it now, then <laughs> when can I? So as we talked about before, running a community group can be exhausting and emotionally exhausting. Um, also really fun. But uh, what inspires you to keep going? <laughs> it, 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 I think many times it's those moments uh, where you play and the band just sounds really good. And everybody's smiling and having fun, and you look out at the audience, and the audience is just moving, and they they're they're responding to what you're playing, and th- those are the moments that that you hold on to. Uh, this this band, because it's not composed of professional musicians, if we play to a bunch of people sitting down, and the energy is not given back to us from the audience, we don't sound as good. You know, when I play jazz, it's like nobody listens to jazz. You're always putting energy out, and nobody gives it back. Um, so there's yeah, there's those moments where um, that those are the ones that really keep you going. And and when people come up too and, and, and give you personal anecdotes, like, you know, one of my good, it's become a good friend in the band, you know, said, Hey, you know, when I joined the band, I, you know, was in the middle of a divorce and, you know, my, my kid and I came out and, and it's been a great experience for us. And, and it's really been meaningful. People, people tell you how much it means to them. And you realize that what you're doing has value and it changes people's lives and that, re- that that's important. It becomes something that you that you put out there and give to people and you feel good about it. Um, there are times when I'm just like exhausted. I don't want to do this anymore. Um, but those those are the things you kind of hold on to to, to keep going. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's been your happiest moment playing this music? Oh boy, there's, there's been a lot of them. Uh, you know, I, I thought of one moment actually in the very early days when we played some version of Marika 2 that I have no idea where it came from and isn't even Marika 2 and, and Batucada was didn't swing at all and, and we were just not very good. But we had a big group and we were playing in a bar and I remember standing there thinking of those old uh, Maxell commercials where the guy's sitting in a chair with sunglasses and his hair is slicked back. I don't know if you guys remember those commercials. He's listening to his, listening to his, yeah. I just, I got that feeling where all the hair stood up and, and you know, the, I felt like my hair was sticking straight back. I'm like, this is just power coming out of this band because people, they believed in it. Even though we weren't that great, it's like you could just feel the energy coming from the band. And I was like, wow, that's, that's cool. And I, and I still have moments like that. I, I think you get that more from, from a younger band. Um, but uh, those, uh, there are, I mean, it's, that's, that's one that really kind of sticks out in my mind. And then, you know, we, we had a gig once with uh, Marcos Santos when he came out. We played in the square. And it was just so much fun to, like, be able to perform with him. And he actually didn't even play. He stood up and directed the band and got people singing. And, and he would look nice. at me and, and tell me what he wanted. So I'd turn around and give the hand signals to the band and change. And it was such a great, great experience. And then, of course, opening for the Mickey Hart Band. That's the other one I'll never forget. Bill Kreutzman was in the back. And he came out to the curtains and watched us. And he was like you know, just smiling. And he sent a text to the stage manager and said, that band was really, really good. And I was like, wow, Bill Kreutzman said that. That's awesome. (laughs) Cool. 
<laughs> so they come. Those are the things that keep you going or moments like that. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us today. I think you have so much experience. It's nice to um, hear your stories, but is there anything that we didn't cover that you want to put out there? <laughs> uh, gosh, no. I mean, thank you guys for, for doing this. It's so great to hear everyone else's stories too. We need to have Brazil camp all the time and just live in a big commune together. Oh, wait, maybe, maybe then we, we would, would like all each- kill each other. <laughs> <Right>. wouldn't we? <laughs> <laughs> we wouldn't like each other as much probably then. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Well, this so could be there our... any gigs or anything you want to promote? Actually, Websites? we are going into uh, into our kind of silent mode. Um, so mm-hmm. we're we're not doing any gigs. But I try and do a big gig every March, and I haven't done so in the last few years. But we're going to try and do our own carnival um, here. Yeah, nice. Yeah, in in March. Uh, the weather's always tricky for us, but that's going to be our. And I'm going to try and do some arrangements of all the batucada and and uh hege stuff that, that we wow. got so yeah yeah so that that yeah, in march cool. everybody come to come to flagstaff come play with us so <laughs> yeah awesome so thank you both for uh for doing this it's such a great podcast thank you for coming on thanks have a good saturday night So I hope you guys liked that episode with Brian Cooperrider. If you want to learn more about his group, we've got links on our website, um, but you can find them at www.sambatuki.org. They are also on Facebook. If you're in Flagstaff, um, definitely go check them out. They have their calendar up on their website so you can go see what they're up to. Oh, there's also another podcast that interviewed Brian. If you want to learn more about him and some of the other things he's up to, it's we've got a link to that also on our website. Brian does a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah, he does. We also have a special announcement. This week was a special, special birthday for some CBC, what should we say, infamous CBC personality. It was Jimmy's birthday. We just wanted to say happy birthday to happy Jimmy. Happy birthday, Jimmy Biala. Yeah, I hope you have like a really great year this year. And Go Giants. Good to see you. Go Giants. Oh, yeah, that's right. Jimmy Go is Giants. an enormous um, San Francisco Giant fan. Um, and if you know him, you know that's the truth. If, you're, if you've ever seen a picture of him, because he's probably wearing <laughs> giant stuff. Yes. <laughs> Yes. And if you ever come to to Brazil camp and um, you look at the benches near the uh, dining hall and there's gear all over them, it's all of Jimmy's gear. It's all black and orange. So there's orange duct tape. Yes. He takes up the whole roll of benches. (laughs) (laughs) Happy birthday, Jimmy. Um, Speaking of Brazil camp, I wanted to announce that through this month of December, if you are thinking about going and you don't want to pay a lump sum, you can sign up for monthly payments through um, the year. Uh, That way you can pay a little bit each month. And this will only be good through December. So if you are interested in coming to camp, which I know you want to... um, check that out so yes go to calbrazilcamp.com if you are interested in that special monthly payment plan uh tell them diana sent you (laughs) (laughs) 
Not that you'll get more of a discount or anything, but just just tell them. Tell them that. <laughs> just keep saying it. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, shout outs to all our new listeners. Do we have any new listeners? I hope so. Um, anything from you, Courtney? Mm-mm. No. Um, keep following us on Instagram and Facebook. Um, send us your audio, rate us on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to send us an email, give us comments, any suggestions, you can uh, email us at thebrazilianbeat at gmail.com. If you'd like to tweet at us, we're thebrazilianbeat1. We're on Facebook as Brazilian Beat Podcast, on Instagram as the Brazilian Beat. You can stream our podcast on our website thebrazilianbeat.com or you can find us on Apple Podcasts Stitcher, Pocket Cast Google Play, Player FM and maybe somewhere else out there we don't know about Any last <laughs> words Courtney? <laughs> um, if, well, uh, no <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening 